Hi, I'm Andrew J. Boyle. Welcome to North by Norway. The Land of the Mountain and the Flood. That's the title of a tuneful, lyrical overture for orchestra by the Scottish composer Hamish McCann. La 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 If you don't know it, look it up. It's a lovely, easy listen. The Land of the Mountain and the Flood. And when I was growing up, it gave me a kick to listen to it and think of the highlands and rivers and waterfalls of my Scottish homeland. I once visited, in its remote valley, the highest waterfall in Scotland, Isakol Aluin, which means something like the waterfall of beautiful tresses, hair, beautiful tresses, and has a clear drop of 200 metres. And then I moved to Norway, and got my perspectives on grand wilderness brutally adjusted. Exploded! Now, I won't ever hear a bad word about Scotland. Its highlands are stunningly beautiful. But if it's high waterfalls you're looking for, well, on the list of the world's 33 highest, one-third are to be found in just one western region of Norway, tiny Norway. This is the land of the mountain and the flood, a fact that has of course been a a godsend for the tourism industry. Let's carefully approach the edge of the Rukan Fall. It's not one of the highest in Norway, but the stunning sight of it, in its location on the shoulder of the Hardangervida, the Hardanger mountain plateau, used to bring visitors from across Europe and North America. It has been called the cradle of modern tourism in Norway. Come on, let's look over the edge, together with the English tourist Thomas Forrester, who visited in 1856. It's impossible to convey more than a faint idea of the body of the cataract as it was precipitated in one vast column into the depths below. Talk of body, it was water spiritualized. Its nature seemed to have changed in its passage down the rapids and charged with air, it broke over the precipice in successive wreaths of white vapour. This mysterious spirit has worked with unwearied energy since time was in God's laboratory and will yet discharge those volumes of steam and water until the final catastrophe when some mightier power of nature shall dissolve 
even the solid framework of these granite cliffs. <laughs> well, the mighty power of the gods at Ragnarok or Judgment Day might be called Alternative A. But while they were waiting, Norwegians came up with Alternative B, a completely different method for spiriting away the rushing cataract. They put it into a pipeline, down to a power station. The Vemork power plant started a production of hydroelectricity in 1911, harnessing the energy of the Rukan Fall. It was then the largest power station in the world. Thanks to its energy, a whole new industry blossomed in the valley, creating artificial fertiliser. This was to be one of the first great milestones in the challenge last century of feeding the world. Of course, many know Vemurk for a darker reason. The energy of the Rukan Fall was also used for making heavy water, and therefore, during the war, the plant became the target of a sabotage mission to prevent Nazis using it for their atom bomb programme. But that's a whole other podcast. Or you can check out the classic Hollywood film, Heroes of Telemark, or stream the recent TV series, The Heavy Water War. Let me give you three big facts about Norway's energy industry. Big fact number one. 90% of all electricity in Norway comes from rain and snow. That compares with 45% for our neighbour, Sweden, or 60% for Switzerland. With our huge mountains, water has got a lot of kinetic energy and makes Norway today Europe's biggest producer of hydropower, and number six in the world. Big fact number two. Norway has half of Europe's reservoir storage capacity. There are a thousand storage reservoirs here, and the total storage capacity corresponds to 70% of our annual electricity consumption. Take, for example, just one of these huge reservoirs, Blåsjö, Blue Lake. It can store 7.8 terawatt hours of energy. That one reservoir stores a thousand times more energy than Germany's largest storage station, Goldestal. Big fact number three. All this is also good news for people outside Norway. For many years now, Norway has had more energy than it could use. So policy for the last ten years has been to sell surplus energy to our neighbours. In March 2021, the Nordlink cable between Norway and Germany came online. In October 2021, 
the North Sea link between Norway and the UK came online. And these links work in both directions. When the wind is gusting across the plains of Central Europe, Germany exports wind energy to Norway. In 2021, Norway exported 26 terawatt-hours and imported 8. When it works as designed, it's beautiful. The whole system dramatically increases energy security across Europe, including in Norway. And in this scenario, Norway has been neatly called the Green Battery of Europe. And why shouldn't it work properly? After all, it all depends on just one simple, natural, reliable mechanism. It just has to keep on raining. Norway has just had its driest 12 months in 26 years. A real outlier in statistics. Reservoir levels have been depleted to record lows and sent prices soaring. Now, lack of rainfall in Norway may not have been upmost in Vladimir Putin's mind when planning his invasion of Ukraine, but it did turn out to be pretty useful for him. He could cut gas supplies to Europe just as the drought emptied the reservoirs of Norway. He must have been delighted to get reports of public uproar in Norway over high energy prices. As in most other countries this year, energy-rich Norway has seen headlines like these. Energy revolt against the government. A choice between food or heating. Nightmare scenario will lead to rationing. So, is Norway about to shut down its policy of energy sharing, just when Europe needs help to keep the lights and heating on during the toughest winter since the war? The answer to that question is being fine-tuned pretty much every day. I'll come back to that later. But let me just quote Shetil Lund, the director of NVE, the Norwegian Energy Directorate. In a speech in June, he reminded power companies of their responsibility to manage not just a commodity, but an essential resource for society. He further asked them to hold back the water so that reservoir levels in the fall are high enough to cope with unforeseen events of the coming winter and spring. The episode photo, which you may have seen, shows my local waterfall, the Sarp Falls, which gave its name to the neighbouring town of Sarpsborg. In 1796, right by the water, stood a traveller from England, one of the great spirits to come out of the Enlightenment, Mary Wollstonecraft. She's best known for her essay, A Vindication of the Rights of Woman, where she argues that women are the equal of men and any appearance of inferiority is caused by education and other opportunities being closed off to them. 
At the waterfall, she is in a meditative mood. Reaching the cascade, the roaring of which had a long time announced its vicinity, my soul was hurried by the falls into a new train of reflections. The impetuous dashing of the torrent produced an equal activity in my mind. My thoughts darted from earth to heaven, and I asked myself why I was chained to life and its misery. Still, the tumultuous emotions this sublime object excited were pleasurable, and, viewing it, my soul rose with renewed dignity above its cares. Grasping at immortality, it seemed as impossible to stop the current of my thoughts as of the torrent before me. I stretched out my hand to eternity, bounding over the dark speck of life to come. We turned with regret from the cascade. Mary Wollstonecraft describes the current of her thoughts and the current of the torrent before her. Well, today at Sarp Falls, the current most people are concerned with is electrical and amounts to a thousand gigawatt hours of clean energy every year. That's enough for much of the county and its industry. Let me tell you a little bit more about the history of hydropower in Norway. It was during the country's struggle for independence from Sweden in the 1890s that the value of energy as a national resource took centre stage. The champions of hydroelectric power called it Vitkul, the White Coal. A leading politician, Gunnar Knudsen, addressed the parliament with these words. Scientific research into electricity has made huge leaps forward in recent years and seems to clearly indicate that our country, with its countless waterfalls, of which only a tiny fraction have been exploited, has greater capacity than any other country in Europe to develop all areas of heavy industry. By the time the country won independence in 1905, huge hydroelectric plants were being constructed below our mountain watercourses, including the Vemork plant below the Rukanfall I mentioned at the start. And what statements they were! Today, the energy industry is hypersensitive to its footprint in the environment. Power stations are more often than not to be found in cavernous spaces, hollowed out inside mountains, out of sight, out of headlines. But in the first decades of hydroenergy, Norway built great granite palaces with castle-like turrets and domes, often sitting at the bottom of a remote green valley surrounded by pastureland, they were a grandiose affirmation of the belief in this modern age, the belief in science and the human spirit to meet any challenge. 
in the mountain village of Ryukan, the locals have a nickname for their power station. They call it the Ryukan Opera House. But it wasn't all pride and pomp after independence. For, like vultures to a lamb, international capitalists converged on the Norwegian stock market. The alarm this caused the newly independent Norway led to the so-called Panic Law of 1906, and a couple of years later the vitally important Concession Law. As idealistic a piece of social engineering as you'll ever see. The inspiration here came from an American source. Henry George was a political economist of the progressive age who made huge waves with his book Progress and Poverty, which came out in 1879. He advocated the public ownership of natural and vital resources such as water and electricity. It was an idea which resonated with Norwegian nation-builders. They saw that private capital was essential to develop industry, and in their concession law of 1909, private investment was both allowed and encouraged, but with one big handicap. After a period of between 60 to 80 years, the natural resource a waterfall or a mine or a river course, along with the industrial plants connected to it, would return at no cost to Norwegian public ownership. Quite something. Let's get back to the challenges facing us today. Long-term, Norway is investing heavily in clean power, a large percentage of which can be exported to our energy partners. Now I'm thinking of offshore wind. Again, the gods looked kindly on Norway when geography was being dished out. This small country in so many ways, including the size of its population, has the second longest coastline in the world. That is, if you include the coasts of all its maritime islands. Only Canada has more coast. If you don't include the islands, Norway still comes in seventh. So, a lot of coast and a lot of offshore wind. In May this year, the government announced a 20-year initiative to double the amount of electricity produced in Norway through offshore wind parks. Today, we've only two offshore turbines, the plan is to increase that to 1,500, and a significant portion of this power will go to other countries. And that brings us back to the thorny issue of the short term, the prospect of a winter which might send European leaders begging to Vladimir to open the gas pipeline. Well, the good news is that Norway potentially the battery of Europe, is doing everything it can to come to the aid of its friends. There are two main steps that are being taken concerning gas and water storage. Now, Norway doesn't actually produce much gas compared with other gas giants. But on the other hand, it only exports its gas, 
so everything it produces goes to other countries. And that makes it the third largest exporter of natural gas in the world, behind Russia and Qatar. And every bit of capacity to produce and store gas is now being squeezed into the tanks. In fact, just three weeks ago, leaders from Poland, Norway and Denmark came together to celebrate the opening of the new Baltic pipe. If Putin keeps his submarines away from it, the pipeline will help Poland move away from reliance on Russian gas. And then there's water storage. Here's a few words from German Chancellor Schultz in August. I very much understand the Norwegian decision-making processes. They have to secure electricity production with water, and this is a very good job they are doing for the whole of Europe and for Norway. What he's referring to is the Norwegian decision to cut down its own flow of electricity so as to build up water in the storage reservoirs. For the security of Europe this winter, it's regarded as essential. And it's a painful process. It involves the government here asking heavy industry to make cutbacks, and it involves importing some energy from abroad in order to keep the floodgates shut up in the mountain lakes. We heard from Energy Director Shetil Lund earlier. Here he is again, addressing this difficult issue a few months ago. Will a reduction in Norwegian energy mean increased imports and higher prices? Yes, I'm afraid it probably will. But in this extraordinary situation we find ourselves in, it seems an insurance policy worth paying in order to meet the coming winter with reservoirs as full as possible. And finally, the best news of all. I've just looked out my window. It's pouring with rain. Several listeners got in touch to ask about the follow-up episode on the Oseberg Viking ship. Well, that's along next week. But for now, tusen tak för att du hörte på. Thanks for listening. And if you like the cool north, tell all your cool friends. Mm-hmm.